This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So recently I was trying to figure out what to give my wife Janet as a gift. You have to understand she wants nothing. Ever, 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 ever. Wants nothing, needs nothing. Ever. So she's impossible to shop for. But then I discovered PaintYourLife.com. Because the thing that is most important to her is family. And it's hard to get family together all at once. We have a son in college now. Everybody's going different directions. But I want to find a way to bring us all together safely. So when I heard that we could do that at PaintYourLife.com, I thought, man, that is an amazing idea. What I'm talking about here is a professional hand-painted portrait created from any photo at a truly affordable price. You choose from a team of world-class artists and work with them until every detail is perfect. I'm telling you, then you get it and you're absolutely blown away by it. And for me and my family, you literally cannot put a price tag on this. There is nothing, there's no store that I can walk into that would mean more to my wife than this. And at PaintYourLife.com, there is no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, text the word ROME, R-O-M-E, to 64000. That's ROME, R-O-M-E, to 64000. Again, text ROME to 64000. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Terms apply. Available at paintyourlife.com slash terms. Once again, text Rome to 64,000. I was getting the tattoo win or lose, so thankfully he ended up winning the fight and it made for a better story. But we have since buried the hatchet if it even needed to be buried. The fact that anybody publicly would think it was a sign of disrespect was something that I had to navigate. It was one of the more challenging weeks of my professional life. My boss was not at all thrilled. He's like, dude, what the hell happened on the podcast? But uh, all's well that ends well, James. Let's crack in. Welcome to episode 181 of the Jim Rome Podcast. Thank you very much, as always, for joining me for this side hustle. I am pumped about this. Great to be with you, and I am very excited to spend some time with John Anik. You know him as the lead voice of the UFC on ESPN and pay-per-view dating back to 2017. He is also the co-host of the Anik and Florian podcast, and of course, he is fresh off the call of UFC 264, so I am amped, hyped to talk to him. Let's not waste any time in getting right to this conversation. It is episode 181 with UFC voice John Anik, and it's coming at you right now. Listen, if you're somebody like me and you've done this as long as I've done this, it's always great to speak to somebody who you've not spoken to before, especially about a topic that you love, in this case MMA. My guest fits the bill perfectly. He is the play-by-play voice of the UFC, John Anik. John, it's great to have you on this pod. How are you? 
Oh, it's great to hear your voice. Obviously an honor for somebody like me to, to talk to somebody like you. And from our whole live production team, man, it's been great for the UFC to have your support over the years. So collectively, we thank you. Yeah, John, I really appreciate that too. I love, love the promotion. I love the business. And I've got great, great respect for you as well. In fact, I want to get to Connor and Poirier in just one moment. But first things first, I kind of subscribe to that old saying, look good, feel good, feel good, announce good, or something like that. My man, that pink Mark Russell oh. fit with the special lining was so badass. How did you decide on that? And what did it feel like to hit the air rocking that? Well, I appreciate you saying that. And, and I don't have to tell you that for a play-by-play announcer, we're just trying to blend in, right? And keep the focus on the athlete. So when I was going through the fabrics, I came across the pink suit and I said to Mark Russell, what do you think? He's like, you got the perfect complexion for it. But I did express my concern at the time. Like, I ain't trying to take any shine away from the athletes, but we thought with the pageantry of a Conor McGregor fight, it was in the summer that uh, it was the right time to make the move. But to your point, right, as performers to whatever degree, we're just trying to go out there and be confident. You know, about a year and a half ago, I started wearing a mustache on TV and it certainly wasn't uh, to bring attention to myself. It was just that I felt confident doing that on TV. And uh, you're right, man. I felt confident walking to the octagon. And uh, that's one and done, though. You're never going to see that pink suit again. See, that's the problem. When you have something that's that good, you really can't wear that again because it makes right. that much of a statement. In terms of you going with a mustache on TV, I think that's great. Like, whenever I see somebody in public, I'm not even talking about on TV, like in public with a mustache, I feel like they're a celebrity. Like, I want to go over and get their autograph. Oh. Like, that dude's got a mustache. I need that guy's autograph. Right. Well, and my kids, you know, they see me with a mustache all the time at home and have for three years. And then I would shave it for TV. I remember that first night I wore it on TV, just trying not to ruffle any Dana White feathers. And thankfully, uh, he didn't seem to have an issue with it. That's, that's kind of a funny thing right there. Like Dana, Dana's awesome. I love Dana and Dana's been really good for our program. You know, Dana, like Dana comes on, Dana says something and you get eyeballs and you get response and you get viruses or you get a, a response. The thing is, John, when you say I don't want to ruffle his feathers, what's it like working for Dana? Well, it's been an, an evolution. I mean, I'm coming up on 10 years in October and I think I sort of respond to his leadership style you know, they say the most basic human need is to feel appreciated, but I certainly don't know that I would thrive if I was in an atmosphere in which I was being coddled. Uh, he still has his fingers on the pulse of everything we do from a live production standpoint. So at times, maybe over the last decade, there have been utterances over an eight hour broadcast that I've said that uh, haven't hit home with him and uh, he's let me know it. But uh, I don't know that I've ever been in a better place with him in terms of sort of boss employee relationship and uh I feel like I thrive under his leadership style. And and in a global pandemic setting, Jim, like he's a guy you want to run through a wall for, you know, like I remember April 2020 trying to tell my wife that I'm going to go to Lamore, California. I don't know how I'm going to get there. And she thought it was crazy. But Dane is the type of guy that makes you want to go to work and do that because you know, he's the hardest worker in the room. Okay, okay, to that point, that he's the hardest worker in the room. The guy's such an animal. John, let me share a story with you really quickly. And again, I've known Dana for a long time, but the one thing that I always think about, Dana once said to me, there's going to be a town hall meeting on Sirius XM, and I need somebody to moderate it. I want you to do it, Jim. Can you do that for me? I said, absolutely. Where and when? He said, I need you in New York. Can you do that? I said, yes. I go to New York, and it's a really quick turnaround, John. Like, I'm going to go to New York and come right back. This is a long, long day. 
on the way home, like I'm headed to the airport, he's going to his jet, I'm going to my commercial flight, and he says to me, hey, brother, thanks for doing that. I want to talk to you, though, for a minute about your social media and your Instagram account. How come you don't have more followers? I said, Dan, I've got like over one million on Twitter. He said, yeah, but you're not doing enough on Instagram. When you land, I want to talk to you about this. Like, John, it was 3 a.m., and Dana is still like, call me. I said, Dana, it's going to be 3. He said, call me, and I didn't call him, and I still regret it. But that's what we're talking about, right? That guy does stuff like that. There's no doubt about it, and he's a huge part of our success. And obviously, he's a polarizing individual to some, and I think it's hard to – to walk a day in his shoes, right? The navigation with the athletes and the staff and everything that goes into pulling off just one of these, never mind 41 of these a year. Like I have the utmost respect for the NFL going 17 straight weeks and all the play-by-play announcers that do that grind. But what we're doing 41 times a year, eight hours on a headset, you know, I don't know that there's any point of comparison. And uh, he's obviously the driver and the captain. So uh, hopefully I got another 10 years in me. We'll see. So the unknown came in 2020, and it changed the workplace forever. We know that. While some of us are getting back to the office, some of us find ourselves in a new normal at home. The future of work has changed, and so is the future of seating. X-Chair is at the forefront of home and office seating during this transition. And now X-Chair's newest innovation, LMAX Temperature Regulation, will take your seating comfort to a whole new level. Patent-pending LMAX allows you to experience cooling, heat, and massage in your low back. Check this. Are you feeling a bit warm this summer? Set your LMAX to cooling. The air conditioning in your home or office, is it cranked up too high? Set your LMAX to heating, warm up, and soothe your tired muscles. Are you feeling stressed from too many Zoom calls? Turn on LMAX massage therapy and relax. Are you kidding me about the X-Chair? This thing is incredible. X-Chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar support was already best in class with incredible responsive low back support. Now with LMAX, your comfort is guaranteed. You will not believe the difference until you feel it for yourself. Imagine regulating your body temperature and getting massage therapy while you're working. It's crazy. If it sounds like I'm hyped on the X-Chair, it's because I am. What you need to do is go to xchairrome.com, xchairrome.com. That's the letter X, chair, rome.com. Or call 1-844-4X-Chair and save $100 off your order. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchair.com right now and use code X wheels for free X wheel blade casters. Xchairrome.com. You know, so one more thought about Dana. You talked about how Dana just sees things and does things and is totally unafraid. Like when that that notion of Fight Island first came up, I'm like, are you, are you kidding me? Like, there's no way something like this could happen. But then you remember the guy who's the driving force behind it, Dana White. What was it like for you to be on and work on Fight Island? That place and that environment, one of the most intoxicating that I have ever been in in my life. I mean, just starting with that W Hotel, Yaz Island, Jim, I know you've been in your share of five-star hotels. There was just something so intoxicating about that venue and that hotel. And then we're bubbled off from the rest of the world. You have all of this high-level mixed martial arts going on at a time when the rest of the sports world was dark. 
it just felt enormous. And there's no doubt that the domestic footprint that we made during the pandemic has had a residual effect. Like I feel like, not that our fan base doubled per se, but I feel like we're in a totally different place in the United States than we were pre-pandemic. So uh, one of the more special times of my professional life. And uh, if you take Dana at his word, we'll probably be back there at some point, maybe later this year, early next. All right, John. So it was so different and it was so unique and it was so eerie, yet the shows came off really, really well and the fights were great. But given what the world's been through for the past year and a half, what was it like for you? What was the atmosphere like in the T-Mobile arena with 20,000 fans packing that joint this weekend? I can't even put it into proper words. I mean, it's the the consummate performance enhancing drug for a play-by-play guy. Now, certainly when I was asked for a year and a half, man, how are you guys calling fights without a crowd? I would sort of lean into the positive and say, we got the cans on. We're sort of in our tunnel and focused on what we need to do. But Jim, it's anticlimactic when Jan Blachowicz breaks through and becomes the UFC light heavyweight champion. And I scream at the top of my lungs, Poland, your guy got it done. And then it's just silence, Mm. right? There's no crowd to lift you up. And in that moment, maybe we would lay out for 10 seconds, which, which means, you know, to, to the layman, shut the hell up for 10 seconds and let the crowd sort of take the broadcast and, and be part of the moment. We didn't have that. So to have that back, uh, it sounds trite, but the fans are the lifeblood of our sport. I mean, you've been to a UFC live event. You know what that crowd noise means to us. So uh, there was nothing like it. And 20,000 sounded like 40,000 at T-Mobile. Uh, and again, hopefully uh, it'll be the same in Houston. When we first had a crowd back, though, in April in Jacksonville, that's one of the loudest crowds at any sporting event I've ever experienced in my life. See, John, the irony here is, and you made this point, that like, is the play-by-play guy, you want to get out of the way, you want to blend in, you want to make it about the fighters, and I'm not even talking to you about the fighters. I'm going to get there, I promise. But the, the process to me is so interesting. For instance, play-by-play generally is not easy. To do it at a very elite level is really difficult, and that's for any of the major sports that we all know. You do it at a really high level, but in an extremely technical sport, a crazy technical sport with lots of different fighting disciplines and styles. Like one thing for Daniel Cormier or Dominic Cruz to describe the action, how did you become so proficient? And did you have any kind of background with the sport previously, or did you just learn it? No, I mean, I learned it, right? I am certainly not a lifelong martial artist. I took karate a little bit as a kid, but uh, I went unwillingly. As an adult, I've taken a little bit of jujitsu and I have done some striking. But Jim, I try to stay in my lane and play to my strengths. You know, I can assure you when a fight hits the ground, Dana's not looking for more jujitsu analysis from John Anik. But the first time that I went to call a mixed martial arts fight in 2009, I mean, anxiety doesn't even begin to describe it. I felt like they had hired the wrong guy. I mean, certainly the stick and ball sports inherently are much more in my wheelhouse. Uh, But I just really tried to stay to my strengths. And what I found was that as I started to call fighting, and I had done some boxing for ESPN, which I guess was from a technical standpoint, a little bit easier. But I found that I just sort of stayed to my strengths and, and was able to do it and really got the rush for it. And obviously now... 11 or 12 years in, I feel like my overall mixed martial arts acumen has improved. But uh, I think a lot of it is just checking your ego and understanding that uh, there may be times where over a 90 second span, the only thing you hear from me is, is a promo is is a promo. And, uh, and I'm okay with that. Sure. 
Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkled donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off, like understanding how compound interest works, knowing how to check your investment professional's background, or figuring out your risk tolerance, or finally understanding all those terms that your friends keep throwing around like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Learn about these investment products and more at Investor.gov, your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, Investor.gov. All right, so Conor McGregor's night, John, against Dustin Poirier, I thought started pretty well. I mean, you got him entering the ring. He's got that trademark, McGregor swagger. Then he begins the round with the return of the kicking game, something that had been missing. It looked like maybe, maybe he had done the work. Looked like, well, I mean, he does the work, but it had maybe gone to school on some of the problems that he had had coming into the fight. It seemed to me that maybe he might turn the clock back some, only to have it all end abruptly with Dustin beating him down again and Connor snapping his leg. Like, top to bottom, what do you make of what you saw from Connor Saturday night? Well, it's so massively disappointing, Jim, that this is our reality that he snapped his leg because he really was going to be in an active fighting schedule and probably try to turn it around here in three months if he had his health, which obviously now he does not for about a year. You know, you're right that he is putting in the work. I mean, there's no questioning the work ethic. There's no questioning the motivation to further bolster his already great legacy. But is he putting in the right work? You know, I don't get a fighter meeting with Conor McGregor because of his star power. I've sat down with Dustin Poirier 10 times over the last five years, right? So I have intimate knowledge of everything that Dustin Poirier has been doing developmentally over the past 10 years. And there have been no gaps in Dustin's mixed martial arts training and improvement. You know, with respect to Conor McGregor's coaches, he didn't compete at all in 2017 and 2019. He was doing boxing. He was doing other things. I feel like from an overall mixed martial arts game standpoint, he has missed valuable time during his fighting prime in training, working on the wrestling, working on the grappling. Why was he so caught off guard by the calf kick in that rematch back in January? You know, there are a lot of different questions. I think he puts in a lot of good work. I think he need, he brings in sparring partners. Um, but is he being sharpened in training the way Dustin Poirier is on a day-to-day basis? I just don't believe so. And I think that reared its ugly head again last Saturday night. I think that is extremely well said by you. What did you make when he went for that choke early on? And not only did he try to do that, but considering who he tried to do that against. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Certainly, I think it was an error in judgment, but a lot of jujitsu guys would tell you that he did have it in fairly deeply. But I think my bigger issue is the thereafter, Jim, right? Like no sort of hip escape. And from a technical standpoint, people would tell you that he wasn't doing the right things with his foot on the hip. Just no sort of urgency and no plan B in terms of his defense and defensive grappling. Like that's my biggest issue is that, he had to be expectant that Dustin was going to try to take, take him down. And, uh, you know, the injury notwithstanding, just next to no real resistance from Connor once he was off of his back. So, uh, and the other thing too, um, what is the percent chance in terms of probability that he's actually going to submit Dustin Poirier? Very, very low, even if he got it in there pretty tight. So, uh, yeah, I think his performance, 
you know, once the fight hit the canvas, left a lot to be desired. That's my thing, too. John, so you made the point before the fight that Connor is good for the sport, and there's, there's no disputing that, of course. Then he goes out, though, and he does get his head handed to him, and while he lay on the canvas, he's just spewing some kind of vile stuff. He actually said some pretty vile stuff prior to the fight. I would say this about Connor, and the point's been made. He, in the past, has been a gracious loser. But then you have Habib, and it was really interesting, wasn't it, what Habib said yesterday, that Conor actually is bad for the sport, and that maybe he suggested as much, and I'm not saying this is exactly what he said, but he was suggesting he's not just a bad loser, he's just a bad guy. Like, what was your reaction to what Habib said? Well, these are rivals, obviously, and I do think that there is some truth in what Khabib Nurmagomedov is saying. I think there has been some regression in terms of Conor McGregor and the sportsmanship. You know, I've been roundly criticized for defending Conor McGregor in the 48 hours that have expired since the fight, because this is personal, Jim, and I don't know the inner workings of this $500,000 donation from Conor McGregor to the Good Fight Foundation. That is in question, but that is the reason for the real venom between these two guys. And I'm not so much defending Conor McGregor. I'm just saying that his philanthropic good nature was publicly called into question by Dustin Poirier. And I do think Dustin regrets that to whatever degree. The difference in these two men is that Dustin came out and said, hey, man, you're right. I probably jumped the gun a little bit. And then Conor just can't help but continuously lean in. You know, I think for a lot of us professionally, maybe we walk up close to that line and don't cross it. I think you can argue that Dustin, uh, or excuse me, Connor, with a lot of his vernacular after this fight crossed that line. Um, But to say he's not good for the sport, you know, I just don't think that's fair. I don't think it's fair to his legacy. And uh, again, he's only six or seven months removed, Jim, from handling a loss about as graciously as he could on one leg going on crutches to the post-fight press conference in Abu Dhabi. And that all predated this whole $500,000 donation that's in question. So uh, these guys have legitimate out-of-octagon beef. And, uh, you know, that's really the only foundation for a fourth fight because competitively it's hard to argue right now. Yeah, I I would agree with you. I think that competitively it it is hard to argue, and I think we're probably going to get it. And for Dustin, I thought that was really personal. In fact, I kind of hate that we're spending all this time on Connor because, John, as compelling as he is, Dustin was just sensational once again. In fact, let me ask you this. Charles Oliveira is the current lightweight champ, and he is unbelievable. But based on what Dustin did to McGregor again and what he's done, John, for the past five years, is he, in fact, the best lightweight in the world right now? Dustin. I think he is. I think he is. And there's a durability and a physicality to Dustin Poirier that I think is going to be very hard for Charles Oliveira to handle. Charles Oliveira certainly is one of the most prolific finishers in UFC history. He can certainly knock you out and and as gifted a submission artist as we've ever had in the UFC. But you're right, Jim. This Poirier body of work is to be celebrated. And a big narrative for me going into the McGregor fight was 11 UFC lightweight wins for Poirier and one lightweight win for Conor McGregor. McGregor. 155 pounds, ubiquitously regarded as Conor McGregor's best weight class. He's one in three at 155 pounds in the UFC. And here is Dustin Poirier now, 20 and six in the UFC, 14 fights over 500, and has done most of that work in what is widely regarded as the toughest division in the UFC. So yeah, I've run out of superlatives for Dustin. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer, and he's accomplished that goal without even being an undisputed UFC lightweight champ. 
Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back that you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically with no limit on how much you can earn. Now, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing because of all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2021 Nielsen Report. Limitations do apply. All right, so John, I could talk to you about any number of fighters, but let me ask you this. You mentioned that you've done some work in boxing, and I came up I came up as a huge boxing fan. I absolutely love the sport growing up, and when I got into the business, I still do to this day, and part of the reason for that, I love the fighters. It just takes a different breed of cat to step between those ropes and put it all on the line, but I would argue you could go ahead and take MMAers and UFC fighters in particular and then multiply that by 100. Even NFLers I know, modern gladiators in their yeah. own right, know that their sport is not as violent as mixed martial arts. You're around these fighters. You call these fights. How would you describe the type of athlete or person who's willing to literally risk their lives every time they get into the cage? Well, you're not overstating it. And certainly all of these sports require a lot of things from these athletes that I think most people like me would not be willing to do. The rare times a year when I do like a two a day where I lift and run, you know, I know that I don't want that to be my day to day. And Khabib Nurmagomedov has publicly come out recently and said, you know, the life of a mixed martial arts fighter uh, is a sad existence in a lot of respects because you have a team, uh, but it's all you in there. And I do think that for a lot of these baseball players, for example, the 162 game grind, you know, Alex Cora in Boston, uh, pardon my bias, but he makes it fun to go to the ballpark 162 days a year. And for a lot of these fighters, there's just a lot of alone time. And uh, I do think our sport is a little bit more su- superficially violent than the others. You know, I, I've covered a boxing death and that sport scares the the hell out of me in terms of the perpetual damage but uh what these guys have to do uh in terms of the recovery and the training to put themselves in position to stare death in the face you know not just on fight time three, fight night three or four times a year but the weight cut the day before um they have my ultimate respect and that's why uh you know when any fighter feels disrespected by the commentary uh we take that very seriously john one thought about khabib like you mentioned what he said that the life of a fighter is very very difficult you know he's made it pretty clear he is retired do you personally think that there is any fight out there that would interest him enough to come back or have we truly seen the last of him in the octagon I'm just not sure that he feels there's anything more to add to his mixed martial arts legacy. I don't think he cares about 30 and 0 versus 29 and 0. I do think we have to give it time because I don't think that he can scratch the competitive itch that he's trying to scratch by cornering Islam Makhachev as he'll do in our main event this weekend. I think eventually he's going to want to compete. Will we see him in a grappling setting? Maybe a professional boxing endeavor uh, is a way for him to mitigate risk and keep his sort of undefeated mixed martial arts legacy intact. But uh, as you know, his mom really doesn't want him competing without his late father. And, and certainly money is not an issue. And uh, I just don't see it, man. Certainly not in the next 36 months. I really don't see it. Hmm. And John, the beauty of the UFC is compared to boxing, for instance, is the best fights get made. Almost always. The best always will fight the best. And it's set up that way, and it's great. It's neat. But are there a few fights over the years, for instance, that you badly wanted to see that never did come to fruition? 
It's a great question. I mean, certainly anything involving Anderson Silva, John Jones, and George St. Pierre is the first thing that comes to mind. You know, my former boss, Lorenzo Fertitta, was the consummate strike while the iron's hot guy. And I think he he would even bemoan the fact that he was never able to get George St. Pierre and Anderson Silva into the octagon at the same time. But dominant champions, as much as people may hate the Patriots or the Tampa Bay Lightning right now, they're good for sport. And what George St. Pierre and Anderson Silva were doing in their collective divisions at the time was was good for the sport. Uh, I would have loved to have seen John Jones and Anderson Silva. And even right now with our welterweight division, you have guys like Colby Covington and Kamar Usman. I can't wait to see the rematch. We have a guy in Hamzat Shimaev uh, that is all the rage right now with a lot of people. So I do think there are a lot of fights involving Hamzat Shimaev and the truly elite welterweights. If those fights can get made, those have been the fights that I've been thinking about for the better part of 18 months. Enjoy a powerful business upgrade with Dell Technologies Black Friday in July event. Get amazing savings with up to 50% off high-performance computers and tech built for business and be able to take your office with you with Windows 10 Pro. Plus, get great offers on Dell servers, monitors, docks, and more, all with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Call 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. And speak to a Dell Technologies advisor today. Started jumping. I don't play favorites, but Chamayev's my favorite. This guy, and I, I've talked to Dana about him. He's Dana's just like he'd fight every day if we let him. What, where's his separation to you? Why is he so dynamic? I cannot get enough of this guy, and I can't wait to see him again. Well, on the ground, he has a lot of the qualities that have made Khabib Nurmagomedov so dangerous. The the suffocating nature of his grappling is truly a sight to behold. Now, I'm so close to the sport that I have an appreciation for, appreciation for the grappling that I think would extend beyond a lot of your audience. But he just makes grappling fun to watch. And he had COVID-19. It was a huge scare. He's had a big gap in competition. And to your point, he wants anything but a gap in competition. But I just want to see him test himself against some of the welter weight division elite it looks like his next fight is going to be against the leech Li jing ling Leong. he is a perennial welterweight contender not necessarily a top five guy i think the big question for me with chimaev is can he make welterweight consistently um because he's competed already at both 85 and 70 in the ufc i kind of see him as a middleweight long term and that's going to be a harder belt to win i think because he will be a smaller guy um but covington chimaev is my dream fight and i do believe that if somehow he can get past the leash, that that would be uh, a fight the promotion would be interested in. Oh, man, that'd be amazing. So a few more things. What about Sean O'Malley? I mean, he, he another fascinating young fighter. He was on the card. Nobody doubts his skill level or his star quality. He ranks very high in both those things. We know he's got upside. In your mind, how much do you think there's there? For instance, when you look at him, do you see a future world champion, or am I getting way ahead of myself with a question like that? I absolutely see a future world champion, and maybe it sounds like promotional hyperbole, but it's not that. Jim, he has believed now for two or three fights that he has the mindset mentally and the skill set physically to compete with the champion right now. He's not getting that opportunity for myriad reasons. I think at times he'll be proposed with a big fight and maybe try to negotiate his contract again, and and if not, maybe just fight for whatever his contract is at currently, Uh, but he's going to get that opportunity, and Therein lies the rub for guys like you and me who are bullish on his ceiling and really think that he can make a run. We will see. But he he's such a willing grappler. And in terms of his striking uh, and his fainting, he's as good as anybody in 
that division, if not the UFC right now. I mean, you should hear some of these coaches talk about his ability and make no mistake about it. He has legitimate one punch knockout power at 135 pounds. It's a hard weight cut for him because he's deceptively strong. Don't let his frame fool you. Sean O'Malley is the total package. I think the only real knock on him has been durability. You know, in two of his six or seven UFC fights, he has ended that fight injured. Um, but his right leg surgically is totally rebuilt. I'm very excited to see what the future holds. For him. I think that's all fair. And he he is surgical in his precision and he does have great power. But I think the point that you make about durability is fair. John, for those who do not know, what is the story behind the 209 ink that you have on your leg. So uh, it wasn't the first time I did a tattoo bet on my podcast. And uh, it is on my arm, by the way. But my bad. five years ago, that's okay. So five years ago, I wasn't calling the pay-per-views. And I thought it would be a funny podcast bit to, uh, to, to bet a 209 tattoo. I basically said on the air, uh, and I did vet this with my wife first, but uh, that if Nate Diaz could essentially come out of vacation in Cabo and beat Conor McGregor on two weeks notice that I would forever brand myself with the 209 tattoo. Now, the backstory is I kind of wanted the tattoo. I was looking for an excuse to get it. Nate's brother, Nick, was long, long my favorite fighter. And, uh, you know, I just wanted the tattoo, man. I'm a numbers guy. Uh, certainly when he ended up winning the fight, uh, it gave the tattoo great me meaning. But once this sort of registered on Nate's radar to whatever degree during fight week and he cracked a mic and said, John Ank better get a fucking 209 tattoo and <laughs> whoop his little ass. You know, once he was pissed, I was getting the tattoo win or lose. So thankfully he ended up winning the fight and it made for a better story. Um, but we have since buried the hatchet if it even needed to be buried. But ultimately, you know, the fact that anybody publicly would think it was a sign of disrespect was something that I had to navigate. It was one of the more challenging weeks of my professional life. My boss, Craig Borsari, initially was not at all thrilled. He's like, dude, what the hell happened on the podcast? But uh, all's well that ends well, James. No, right? And, and by the way, I mean, I don't know, John. You and I are just talking for the first time. I, I don't think in any way you would swerve out of your lane to disrespect any of these guys, much less the fucking Diaz brothers who are just the right, ultimate. Right. You you just said it. Nick is like your favorite guy. And again, right. you can't play favorites either. What a, And I forgot. I love these guys. Love these guys. What about Nick? Now, there's been buzz that yeah. Nick is going to fight again for the first time in six years. Do you think he will? And if so, what do you expect from him? The fact that Nick Diaz was forthcoming publicly in his desire to fight and then reached out to UFC president Dana White is very telling, Jim, because I don't have to tell you just how low he lays when he does not want the MMA noise and does not want to be in the space. So I think it's encouraging. Uh, obviously, there are rumblings that Robbie Lawler would be the return fight, and, and Lawler has sort of been plagued by inactivity over the last several years as well. Uh, I know a lot of fighters don't believe in ring rust, and I think for a guy like Nick Diaz, who is always in the gym and doing his mini triathlons every other week, I don't worry about rust per se. Um, but where is he, right? Because age is not just a number when you talk about 40 plus. And I think a lot of us out there working out day to day can attest to that. Um, but again, not unlike Conor McGregor, sports better with the Diaz brothers in it. So uh, Nick Diaz is one of the few guys uh, who I've never had the chance to call a fight for. And, and I would relish the opportunity. All right, so John, two quick things before I let you go, and what a great conversation this is. I'm curious, you've worked with some really great fighters that are alongside you, you know, DC, Dominic Cruz, one of my favorites, Michael Bisping. I'm really yeah. curious, like, you form relationships with these guys because you work with them professionally. What's it like then when you see them fight and maybe having to call a fight after you've gotten to know them so well? 
It's a great question. And it's been something that I've dealt with now so many times that I've really been able to get over it. I think when Daniel Cormier, one of my dear friends, was in that trilogy with Stipe, that was very challenging for me because I was emotionally invested. Even though I've known Stipe longer and I have a lot of relationships on the Miocic side as well, I'm spending so much quality time with Daniel personally and professionally. And then here he is trying to become the first light heavyweight champion to move up and, and become the heavyweight champion. I was anxious, you know. After I get through the walkout, though, Jim, and the fight begins, they really are two athletes to me, and I'm, I'm able to separate myself from that equation. But the preamble, the walkout, there are a lot of emotions that that just aren't there when uh, when it's just another fighter, for lack of a better way to put it. But I'd probably work with 15 different broadcast combinations, and uh, I actually have said publicly, sometimes it's harder watching my friends from home than actually being busy uh, and calling the fights. But when they retire, man, nobody's happier than me. I'll tell you that. Interesting, especially DC, because there just is no better guy in any sport than DC. Just one of the all-time great guys. So, John, finally, your first media gig was actually on an iconic show in DC back in the day. For those who don't know that, what was the show? Who was the host? What was that experience like? Yes, in 1999, I was doing a journalism semester at American University in Washington, D.C., and I was an intern at WRC-TV, the NBC affiliate in Washington, D.C., for the George Michael Sports Machine. And as someone who handwrites his fighter cards to this day, I won't forget 22 years ago charting three football games on a Saturday afternoon for George Michael. May he rest in peace. But there are a lot of us who have interned for him over the years who have gone on to uh, to work in radio and television. What was interesting for me, I just wanted to be a sports writer and a radio guy. I get this great internship in TV and had to put on a suit just to chart a football game. So I didn't love that part of it. But uh, that was sort of my first initiation into television and uh the wheels sort of started to churn from there, but I, I remember those days fondly. What a classic show. Like, what was he like to work for? Well, it's interesting because his wife was one of the writers on the show, and the way he would talk to her for a young kid like me, I was like, man, he's lighting her up, but maybe it's just like me and Data White just try to get the best out of her. But that was something that opened my eyes at a very young age. You know, he was demanding. There's no doubt about it. He had a very specific way that he wanted us to sort of chart these games and had very specific things he was looking for in a baseball or a football game. Like if there was a play at home plate, 90% of the time that was leading his highlight. But I think any of us uh, who are a little bit long in the tooth can remember him pressing that button, you know, lighten up the machine. Let me take you to Houston. He was an absolute legend in his own right. And uh, I was a little bit starstruck walking in there uh, on my first day and my last day. I remember that. Absolutely. Him hitting that button late night. Yeah. John, listen, one last thought. As a Boston guy, you know, I don't know if you know this, my my father was from Boston. Half my family was yeah. is in Boston. I know this. They don't get out, man. Like the few that tried oh. to escape got their ass dragged right back in. Tough town, tough breed of people. What was it like to grow up in that area and be a fan of Boston area teams? It really is amazing when you talk about being born into it, right? Because the Celtics were the only thing that were going to be on television in my house in 1984, whether I liked it or not. And my grandfather was a longtime Patriot season ticket holder when they were the laughing stock of the NFL. I joke with people, yeah, they got a bunch of banners now. But in my lifetime, I'm probably 60, 75 games under 500 at Foxborough Stadium or Schaefer Stadium or Gillette Stadium. So we experienced our share of losing. Um, but the passion, man, you know, there was nothing like it. The real and, and to this day, even though I've softened a little bit in so far as 
I would love to see like the Toronto Maple Leafs break through. 20-year-old me never would have uttered a sentence like that. Uh, but I'm still as rabid a Boston sports fan to this day as I was back then. And uh, even though I don't deal with the snow and the cold anymore, uh, I, I bleed green. And, and I'm very thankful, obviously, to have grown up in such a, a rabid sports town. I respect it. I appreciate it, John. I don't know how you and I did not come together sooner, but I'm so glad that we did. I really appreciate you making time for it. That was an absolute blast. It was a big ask. I appreciate all the time you spent with us, and let's be sure to do it again. That was so fun. My man, I've admired you forever. Uh, My whole family was excited about this. Thank you for having me, and uh, you got my number, man. How awesome was that? Huge props and many thanks to John Anik. What an absolute pro he is. Fantastic to spend time with somebody like that who's got that kind of knowledge and passion for the sport. What a great job that was. Also, in the meantime, if you like what you just heard, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast. Once you do that, you never have to go looking for it. It will find you every single week, like episode 182, which is going to drop next week. Until then, here are your voicemails. First new message. Jim, Kirby from Utah. Hey, in the last three weeks, you've gone Tim Legler, PJ Fleck, and now Luke freaking Robitaille. Holy cow, Jim. <laughs> keep up the good work. You have the trifecta right now. Just keep going. Thanks. Bye. Message saved. Next message. Hey, Rome, what's up? This is David from Buffalo. Biggest question for you when you went to Wisconsin is not the weather. Did you play golf? Did you go out on a boat? But it's did you go to Culver's, man? And did you get the ice cream there? Out. Message saved. Next message. What's up, Jimmy? It's Dr. Dave. You know, welcome back. Getting rid of the geese is easy if you're on the golf course. What I did once was my drive was so shitty that I once smacked a goose in the head with it, and it ran away, and then I saw it go seize in the forest, and then it just seemingly walked away after that. Maybe it probably got an epidural hematoma later on, and it probably fucking died, but I think that got rid of the geese for sure. Maybe just try aiming your driver at them. That would be great. Later, fuckers. Message deleted. Next message. Romy, Justin, and Melbourne, man. Smack off 27. It was incredible, man. There were so many great calls. I don't truly believe one call stood out in front of the other. I mean, there was probably at least five or six winners on different eras. And the beauty of it is, get rid of the gimmicks. This is just pure, natural smack. So a job well done to the Jungle franchise and war us clones thirsting for your safety return back from Wisco, and we won't give you a hard time if you put on 10 to 15 LBs. I'm out. Message saved. Next message. Hey, Jim. Paolo here up in Ottawa, Canada. Just listen to your pod with Luke Robitaille. Great story, great person. Ninth round pick making the Hall of Fame. Incredible left winger. My favorite part was you and Luke reminiscing about Rogie Vachon. Man, that guy was fucking amazing. To this day, I'm 56 years old. If uh, I'm watching hockey with my buddies and someone makes a great save, we say, Rogie. Listen, keep up the great work. Love the pod. I'm out. Message saved. You have no more messages.